0: Bible, Uh, that's on page 632, page 632, Jeremiah chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 20 to 31, we believe when God's word is read, God's voice is heard, so would you please stand to hear God's voice? Jeremiah 5, verses 20 to 31. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear Yahweh our God, who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice, the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares Yahweh, or shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? Let's be seated as we pray. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would speak this morning, that it wouldn't be one man's ideas, but that it would be your thoughts that we hear. And so we all bow our knees before you and pray that your spirit would work in our minds and our hearts, that we would have open eyes and open ears. In Christ's name, amen. So Jeremiah, I don't think, would have uh, done very well in public speaking. He's not going to uh, win friends and influence people by coming out and calling them people blind, deaf fools. Jeremiah, you don't win people to your position by calling them fat and sleek. I, I, I don't think Jeremiah's message would uh, settle very well today. But it didn't settle very well in those days either. As far as we know, there was only maybe no converts or, or at the very least Baruch, his scribe, might have been his only convert. There was no great revival that broke out his preaching, no, no national repentance. In fact, one of, the, uh, one of the most dramatic scenes in the book of Jeremiah is when the, the king of Judah gets the scroll with all of Jeremiah's sermons on it and cuts it up line by line and burns each line of his sermon in the fire. sometimes it's the contrarian voice we need to hear. And always, always, it is the voice that speaks for God that we need to hear. So let's have a look at this sermon from Jeremiah that is actually God's message to his people then. Let's look at this sermon that few would dare to preach today. Let's see what prompted Jeremiah to call the people of God blind and deaf and then describe them as fat and sleek so that we may find, perhaps, that we need to hear his voice or indeed we need to hear God's voice as much today as ever. So let's look. He's speaking on behalf of God. We see that in verse 20. He's supposed to declare. always telling him, declare these things. And what is he to declare? Verse 21, there it is. He calls them the blind, deaf fools, right? You foolish, senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Why does he call them blind? Spiritually blind. Well, we see the answer first in verse 22. Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble before me? And then again in verse 24, they do not say in their hearts, Let us fear Yahweh our God. Now, the idea of fearing the Lord or fearing Yahweh is simply this to understand Him as the one who is great and mighty, who holds all power and all wisdom, and understand ourselves in relation to Him as small and weak and fragile. And limited in our wisdom. With that comes a certain reverence and awe. And even a righteous trembling. Not as a fear of of somebody who's mean or angry at you. But a fear of one who holds great power. Where you understand your own smallness. Do you not fear me? And then. Verses 22 and 24 go on to explain what they should be thinking about. Why is it that they're blind because they don't fear him? Because there's certain things, he says, that they don't see. So in verse 22, he says, look at the beach. Look where the ocean and the sand meets. Somebody established that barrier. You see these huge waves come rolling in, and yet they always stop on that sandy shore. Always stop on that sandy shore. Somebody set that up. And yes, we can explain it through all sorts of science and meteorological explanations, but think about this. There are times when that same hand pulls back the barrier. And the tsunami wave rushes in past its barrier. Or the typhoon comes billowing in from the oceans, or the hurricane comes spiraling in. And then we realize how small we are as man, don't we? How little power we hold. Are we so blind to think. That we are the mighty ones. And that God. Should do our bidding. Or be like what we think he should be. Or do we genuinely fear the Lord. Who established these barriers. Or look at the explanation in verse 24. There he talks about the harvest time. He says it's God. Who brings the rains at their appropriate times, and then allows for the crop to come up and there to be a harvest. Again, well, that's just part of the natural process, right? I found in my experience in pastoring, it's actually farmers and ranchers in Texas uh, who understand their own smallness and the bigness of God better than most. Because they realize how dependent they are with all our modern farming techniques, with all our modern methods, how dependent they are on God to provide that rain and to cause the crop to grow. And so when there is a drought, when the rains don't come, or when something happens to the crop so it doesn't grow and there is no harvest, we realize how much our hands are tied and how little we can do despite all our work. Are we deaf? Are we blind? Are we senseless? Are we foolish? Do we not realize who God is, the great and mighty God, and how small we are? Well, Jeremiah goes on in verses 25 to 28 to give give the proof, of their spiritual blindness. So he said you're, you're spiritually blind because you don't see that, that God is mighty. You don't fear the Lord. But what's his proof of that? Well, he says that they are a people who have grown wealthy and increased themselves at the expense of their fellow man. He compares them to a fowler trying to catch a bird who's lying in wait ready to trap that bird for his own gain. And he says, you do that with other people. So you've gained your wealth on the backs of other people. But even more so, as they have grown increasingly great and increasingly wealthy, look what it says about them in verse 28. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless. To make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. As they've grown wealthier, the fatherless and the poor, the fatherless and the needy, he become less and less important to them. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, you come across this, these, these phrases regularly. It talks about the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, and the needy. And those, those four different uh, ingredients get mixed together in different recipes, but they're always talking about the same basic thing. And, and it's somebody who, um, through no fault of their own, is in a situation where society is, is built in such a way that it's hard for them to get anywhere. It's the, the, the cards are stacked against them. And it's these people who, who society tends to overlook, whose society tends to say, you know what, you're on your own. We're not going to be helping you. But God says, my people must be helping them. In fact, this is the main thing that Jeremiah puts forward as evidence or proof that Israel doesn't feel God, fear God. How they've cared for the fatherless and the needy, the most helpless, the most defenseless in society. Their ability to overlook them is at the service of their own comfortable lives. They say, if society is, is overlooking them, and I'm able to do that, and it allows my life to continue to get better and improve, It doesn't matter how I treat them. So this is the crucial logic to understand within this passage. If we can overlook the most helpless. Because it's inconvenient for our comfortable lives. Jeremiah is suggesting we do not fear the Lord. Verse 29 says, what am I going to do about this? I'm going to bring punishment. And that's exactly what happened. This nation, because of these sins, was carried off into exile. Jerusalem fell. The temple was destroyed. And actually, though the exile would end, the Jews never returned to their place of prominence again. this question begs, or this passage then begs, I, I guess I should point out 30 and 31 there too, It meant to do that. Something interesting there that Jeremiah attacks on in verses 30 and 31, he talks about these religious voices, these moral voices in that day, who are telling the people that their behavior is acceptable, they're prophesying falsely, they're telling the people the very opposite of what God has said. And they're saying your behavior is okay and the prophets and the priests are all supporting that and the people love it because they can keep on doing what they want to do in the ways they do it without having to examine their hearts or question what they're doing. All right. So now this passage begs a crucial question. It begs the question, why is it That Jeremiah goes to their treatment of the fatherless and the needy as proof that they do not fear the Lord. Why is it their treatment of their fellow human beings, particularly those fellow human beings who in their society are the most needy and the most helpless and the most defenseless without a voice, as proof they do not fear the Lord? I think it's because to truly fear the Lord is to think like Him. And one of the things that's most clear in Scripture is the value and dignity of all human life. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 where God talks about man in a very unique way and He says male and female are alike, are created in God's image. And then, In Genesis 9, he underscores that importance, that there's a way we are to treat our fellow man because they are created in God's image. In fact, this idea of God's care for humanity and his valuing of human life is exhibited so clearly And the overriding story of redemption that comes in the scripture because man rebels against God. The very thing he's called to do, he stops doing, reflecting God's image to the world. And yet God says, I am not going to just hand them over to judgment. I am going to bring about a plan whereby they can be redeemed. And that plan ultimately meets, meets its culmination in God himself sending God the son, his only begotten son, To die and to bear the wrath that our sins deserve so that we can be saved. That is a reflection of God's value of humanity. If you think of all the other religions in the world, they don't have God doing something like that. Yeah, there, there's a God up there that we kind of have to be good enough to please, or there's a God out there, or several gods out there, or whatever. But there's this concept out there that we've got to keep getting better and better and doing more and more good deeds. That's all out there, right? But, but with Christianity, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believes in him shall not perish but have life everlasting. And this teaching of the valuing of human life is repeated over and over and over again, particularly God's care for the most needy. You see, we tend to, as humanity, we tend to favor the advantage. So we'll give justice to the people who are in our social class or who are are the rich and powerful and influential or even the middle class. Those people will give justice to. Our tendency is to overlook the people on the fringe. And so God brings the corrective and says, no, I am going to state over and over again my heart for the most needy amongst you because you tend to overlook them. So Jesus teaches a story about a Samaritan who sees somebody in need, in great need on the side of the road, and he helps him, and he commends him, teaching, this is how you love your neighbor. How do I love my neighbor? The person near me in need is the one I am to help. Or when the Apostle Paul first is converted and he's thinking about going out as a missionary, the other Apostles say, yes, you can go out, but they give him one condition. It's recorded in Acts and the book of Galatians. Remember the poor, which Paul adds was the very thing I was eager to do. And James writes, pure and undefiled religion is, Which is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Is this. To look after orphans. And widows. And their distress. And to keep oneself. Unblemished from the world. So. As Christians. We are called to treat everybody. Every soul. With dignity. And love. And equity. Regardless of age stage, or background. And that has been the reputation of Christians through the centuries. Very early on, you see, in in the Roman world, they didn't didn't do abortion. What they did is if they had an unwanted baby, they practiced exposure. So they put them out in the elements where often a wild animal would take care of the, 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 the baby, or maybe they would just die from not having their needs met. And Christians would go out and hear these babies crying and rescue them and adopt them and raise them as their own. A little later on, the practice was to drown the babies in the river. And Christians, some of the earliest pictures we have, the paintings we have of Christians are of them rescuing babies from the Tiber River. Later on, Christians would be the first to establish hospitals, orphanages where the needy could be cared for. After the industrial age, the the capitalist took advantage of children, exploiting them to run their factories. And who was it that stood up to the capitalists and fought for the laws that would defend the rights of children? It was Christians. And when the barbaric practice of the African slave trade was thriving in the British colonies and in the the United States. It was Christians in Great Britain and Christians in the northern states of the United States that led the cause to end that horrible practice. I don't want to oversimplify things. I understand there are people who call themselves Christians on both sides of some of these issues. But It was people standing on truths from the Bible, compelled by the logic of Scripture. And it was that ethos and that force that brought an end to these horrible things. You look today and you see children who are born handicapped or with special needs whose parents don't feel they can take care of them. Who is it that is adopting them? Overwhelmingly, it is Christians. You look out on the world and the thousands and thousands and thousands of orphans around the world. Who is it that's adopting them? Angelina Jolie. (laughs) And Christians. Overwhelmingly, Christians. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, then... We have to ask ourselves, do I care for the most fragile and the most needy around me? If we call ourselves a Christian but we can't say that's true about us, there's reason to say, Has do I really fear the Lord? And has the gospel really changed my heart? Do I care for the most fragile and needy around me? So, who is more fragile than a baby in his mother's tummy? Who is more voiceless than a preborn child? Who is more defenseless than a little baby in utero? make no mistake about it, the Bible is clear that pre-born children are human beings. There's a beautiful Hebrew symmetry in in, in the poetic lines of Psalm 139, verse 13, that says, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. There's Jeremiah's call, where God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And Isaiah says similarly of his call, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. And he goes on to say, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant. And then he'll say what he says. Or you think of two pregnant women coming together at the beginning of Jesus' ministry here or time here on earth, right? There's Elizabeth with John the Baptist in her, and there's Mary with wasn't showing yet, Jesus in her. And they come together and what does pre-born John the Baptist do that Luke draws out for us? He leaps with joy in his mother's will. Or consider the incarnation itself. When does God take on flesh according to the scripture? It's not when he's born in Bethlehem. It's when the Holy Spirit, when Mary conceives by the Holy Spirit. Would any of us call pre-born Jesus, anything less than fully human. We have something serious before us. I know we have different stories in the United States and in Canada. But since 1970 in Canada alone, 32 million babies have been killed in their mothers' womb. If you take all the Canadians who have died in war, I think it's something like 28 times the number of all Canadians who have ever died fighting. Every year in Canada, 100,000 Are killed in a day. If you just do the, you know, divide it out over over a day, it's over 270 children dying every day. Some of you may have been struck like I was at the horrible killing at Sandy Hook Elementary School two years ago, year and a half ago. It's like 13 different Sandy Hooks happening every day. Throughout the whole year, I think the reason we become callous to it is because it's so frequent. Our hearts can't bear the pain. So we just dull ourselves a bit. What can we do? It's clear that God's Word, the Word of Jeremiah, speaks to us today. We need to care for the helpless, the voiceless. What can we do? The first thing we can do is pray. Only God can bring a change to a nation and change its values and morals. So we need to make it a regular part of our prayers that this barbaric practice would end in Canada and across the globe. I have it on my regular part of my prayer sheet and I encourage you to do the same. The second thing we can do is vote. I can vote in the United States, you can vote here. I know the argument, you know, well, there's, there's more issues that, that uh, matter than just abortion, right? Well, let me ask you a question. Would you vote for a candidate who largely espoused everything you, espoused everything you believed in, except thought it was appropriate and was advocating for any special needs child should just be killed? You would never be able to vote for somebody like that even if they agreed with you on so many other issues this is a pressing issue of our time and we need to vote for people who will stand for the cause of the voiceless in their mother's womb we can also be there for moms who are dealing with difficult pregnancies so if somebody who you know or whose lives has come into contact with yours is dealing with a difficult pregnancy, difficult for whatever reason, be there for them as a support. Pray for them. Encourage them. I'm not saying go preach to them about the evils of abortion. I'm saying just love them and support them in their pregnancy. Maybe even invite them into your home if need be. And when a mother like that chooses to have her child, be there to support the single mom. Say you'll watch their kids for a time. Send your husband over to do some chores around the house for them that she might not be able to do, or go yourself. Another thing you can do, we can do, is support crisis pregnancy centers. There are all across Canada places where people are volunteering their time or, or doing work at, at, at well below their grade pay to help moms in need through these types of times and provide the kind of counsel and support they need. Support them with your efforts, your time, and your money. I'd also say don't remain silent. I understand as an American, we're good at not remaining silent. We sometimes do good at it, right? (laughs) Um, I, I like that Canadians are careful and tactful about how they speak and I don't want that to change. But an issue like this, I think it's important to speak up. might be easy, and, and maybe it's not easy, but it might be one thing to go to an abortion clinic and, and protest its opening or whatever. Those people are already hardened in their positions, but a great majority of Canadians are generally against the idea of abortion, but fight for keeping it legal because there are certain cases where they want to be sensitive to that. Those are the type of people you can engage in conversation. Just push their logic. Is it really a human life? Is it really a baby? And if it is, what should we be doing about that? And Open those doors. Ask questions. Cause them to think. The last thing I'd say is be willing, if you're in a position and you're able to do it, to adopt children who are born in pregnancies that would often otherwise have been aborted. This is one of the great things that we can do to say as Christians, we're not just preaching a holier-than-thou, that's your problem over there, and we're telling you how to live your life attitude, but that we actually care and are willing to put our lives and our livelihood on the line for the unborn. Now, when I give a message like this to a room like this, I know there are probably women here who have had an abortion. And I want to say this, oftentimes women are one of the victims in an abortion. Because we create this whole fabric where they feel immense pressure and feel coercion and, and like, like that's what they have to do to honor whoever to, to do the right thing. And it's not them who kill their baby. It's somebody else who kills their baby. And then they walk through life wounded, and carrying a heavy conscience and guilt. And I say, this is part of why we need to have a vo- give, give, give a voice to this issue, because we need to defend those women and not force other women to go through the same kind of turmoil that those women have gone through. And so if you're in those shoes today, this is a church that cares for you and carries your burden, is going to do what we can to make sure other people don't have to bear the weight you're bearing. I know there are a percentage of women who get an abortion knowing full well that what they're doing isn't right. And it's their decision and they're not doing it with pressure or coercion. And some of you may be here today. And and as I've said, abortion is something that's wrong. But do know that this is a church of people who are sinners. Sinners. If you look at any of our paths, including mine as a the pastor, there are things that we feel guilt over, or there's shame associated with it, or something we wish we hadn't done. The message in this church is not you have to be good enough to fit in the doors of Maple Avenue. If that's our message, let's all leave. Because if you think you are, I don't want to be in a church with you. No. We are people that realize we need Jesus who has died to bring forgiveness and healing to our souls. So you're welcome here if you're somebody dealing with that. And know that in Christ there can be great healing and growth. You haven't committed the unpardonable sin. We started by allowing Jeremiah to speak a word to us, didn't we? A message from God that perhaps we needed to hear. Are we blind fools? Are we fat cats? Do we perpetuate our comfortable lifestyles on the backs of the unborn? Do we love the voices of the prophets around us who say that the moral high ground is in being pro-choice for, quote, what they call women's rights? trample over all sorts of women's rights? Or do we stand with true Christians through the centuries who are willing to be known as those who stood up against the prevailing ills of their day and advocated for those who had no voice? That's what Jeremiah has to say to us today and I think we do well to consider it in light of what Christ has done for us which we'll be thinking about in just a moment will you join me in prayer Father we come to you and we cry out for the voiceless across Canada the hundreds or over 200 probably today on a day like today who will die having their life snuffed out without any ability to defend themselves. And we pray that you would bring an end to this. And we pray that we as a church would be known as a church that cares for not only the needs of the unborn, but all who are needy, who are voiceless and defenseless in our lives. Show us how we can be like you and have your care for the sanctity of human life. In Christ's name,